The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted to be joined by Todd Bensman, who is a senior fellow at the Centre for Immigration Studies and the author of a forthcoming book coming out in February called Overrun, How Joe Biden Unleashed the Greatest Border Crisis in US History. Now, Todd, we're going to talk about Joe Biden being in Mexico, because that's where he is. He's due to meet with President Obrador and Justin Trudeau of Canada, the three amigos, as they're being dubbed. And they're going to talk about lots of things. But the overwhelming issue, I think, for most Americans, it's fair to say, in relation to Mexico is immigration. Can you tell us a bit about Joe Biden's track record on immigration, how big a concern it is for Americans, and what reforms might come about as a result of any discussions with the Mexican government? Sure. Well, about 30,000 a month were crossing the southern border when Joe Biden took office. Within a month, that number was about 200,000 and then stayed in the 200,000 range uh, every month for two years straight, resulting in, you know, by far the you know greatest number of apprehensions and entrances into the United States over its southern border in its recorded history. Altogether, you know, the estimates are about uh, 5 million in 24 months. So this is really something beyond the American experience. The cause of that great mass migration crisis, more than anything else, are policies that were enacted on Inauguration Day, literally on the very first day, and um, in the ensuing week, about maybe um, uh, several uh, hundred different decisions that were made ready for implementation as soon as he entered office. And the immigrants around the world, you know, heard that and saw that they could get in and that they were being allowed in over the border. And when they see the upstream immigrants being allowed in, the downstream ones come. It's like a snowball effect where the snowball starts small and very quickly becomes a big giant avalanche. So those are policies that that he caused, that his people enacted immediately and there was an immediate response of a swell that has never ended. I mean, it was obviously sort of in terms of governmental policy, quite a uh, crazy thing to do to sort of invite such a massive flood of illegal and legal migration. To what extent was it Democrats trying to signal that it, this was a change from the era of Trump, the story of uh, Kids in cages was very big in the Donald Trump era. To what extent was Biden and the Democrats desperate to show that America was open again? Uh, to, to a very great extent, actually. 
Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, in my book Overrun, you know, I pretty openly blame this as a reaction against Trump, that this ultimately can be laid at the feet of um, Donald Trump's policies, which were regarded as so incredibly odious to the American left that they responded in, you know, that, that by overcompensating to a, an extent that, that with policies that have never, ever been countenanced by the d- normal traditional Democratic Party coalition. These are policies that are far, far outside anything that even the Democratic Party traditionalists have ever contemplated or allowed. So the progressive left really took over, seized the immigration portfolio and instituted a vision that you know no party in the United States has ever accepted in the past. Quite soon, I think I'm right in saying, quite soon after Biden became president and this crisis sort of erupted quite quickly, he put Kamala Harris in charge of that problem, didn't he? That was a bit of a, a, a hospital pass, as we'd say in England. I don't know if you have that expression in America. And uh, it's fair to say she did not handle it very well. Well, I think I think what's happening there is, you know, that's a lose-lose portfolio. The vice president, you know, clearly saw what was happening. There's There was no um, edge to be gained for her to stay in charge of it. So she's just... She may be the quote unquote border czar, but really doesn't do any border czar work, just, you know, keeps herself at a distance uh, from it. So, and I, I, you know, who can blame her, you know? What happened to the, I think in the Trump era, there was the remain in place policy where the US government would effectively pay Mexico to keep migrants. Has that dissipated? For the most part, yes, uh, that's the remain in Mexico policy, the highly, highly effective, but also, you know, objectionable policy that required immigrants to wait for their asylum claims to adjudicate while they were in Mexico, rather than while they were in the United States. Because, I mean, let's face it, if they were waiting while they were in the United States and they lose, they're staying. They're never leaving. You're going to have to come get them. And in recognition of how the asylum system was being abused, Donald Trump put that into place and it was highly effective. Huge numbers stayed home. That's really what wrestled the numbers down to manageable levels. The Biden administration immediately eliminated that on day one. And there was litigation that has retained some rump version of that policy. Uh, It's still officially in place, but they have filled it with so many loopholes and, you know, exemptions that it's effectively not a policy. It's uh, not a thing. If you talk to immigrants down there, nobody's afraid of being removed uh, for remain in Mexico. All you have to do to get around it is tell them you're afraid to go back to Mexico and they let you in. And to what extent is this politically, is the scale of the crisis politically damaging to Joe Biden? Because obviously we've just had the midterms. There's a cost of living crisis going on in America, as there is globally. There's an immigration crisis going on in America, as there are there is in a lot of other countries. And yet the uh, great red wave didn't happen. 
other issues, abortion possibly, played a part in the Democrats not losing as heavily as, as they might have done. How high a priority is this as an issue in American voters' minds? Uh, well, polling up through to the, in the lead lead up period to the midterms was showing that the border and immigration ranked as number three among issues of concern to all Americans, Democrats and Republicans, although far more for Republicans than Democrats, but very sizable numbers for Democrats. But in the midterms where you had other issues playing out, like, you know, the abortion issue state by state. And, you know, you had economic or you had Donald Trump in the mix who was endorsing certain candidates. And that brought up, uh, brought out a, um, you know, a backlash for his candidates. Uh, so I, I, I don't know how it's going to play out in 2024 for a national election, but it almost certainly will be one of the primary issues because two years from now, we'll have another five or 6 million illegal immigrants inside the United States for maybe a total of as many as 11 or 12 million people that this administration let in over the border, which is just, you can't help but but see and feel that all across the country. You already have major American cities declaring disasters and emergencies one after another and demanding federal bailouts and uh, that is only going to gather momentum as the millions pour in and become an issue. It should become, I believe, a greater issue in the 2024 cycle. It's interesting you say all over the country because probably non-Americans would imagine that it's southern cities that would be worst affected. But actually, it spreads quite quickly throughout the country. The problems, the social problems are spreading quite quickly throughout the country. Well, I spent a lot of time with the immigrants uh, over the last two years, I've probably interviewed a couple thousand of them. And I see them getting on the buses. I interview them as they're getting on the buses from the border to go to their cities. And I think I've counted like 34 different cities that they were busing themselves to. So this thing is really, I mean, people are going to, you know, pretty much every every city in, in America uh, where they can find relatives or jobs they're in the interior, they're in the heartland, they're in the north, they're in the south, the east, the west. Uh, they are just piling into pretty much every major American city and have for two years straight. Tell us a little bit about these migrants, having interviewed them. Uh, presumably you do the, you conduct the interviews in Spanish? Yeah, I usually have an interpreter. An interpreter, yeah. And what, give us a, you know, obviously you can't stereotype too much, but give us the average situation of uh, a migrant, an illegal migrant into America, and why do they choose a certain city? Is it because they, they're told by other people that that's a good place to go at this particular moment? What's their sort of usual story? The usual story is, you know, these are uh, people uh, who are poor and living in economically economic backwaters like Honduras and El Salvador and really every country of Africa now too, all over the, really all over the world, more than 40% of this mass migration uh, are from 140 plus different countries. It's very unusual. Uh, normally that number is, you know, below 5%. Now it's 40%. The entire world is on the march. And what they tell me is, 
you know, they heard and saw that the, that the Biden administration had had opened the border and was letting people in. Almost everybody uh, was getting in. So they sold everything they had and saw it as an opportunity to, you know, make the big move to, uh, you know, the greatest country on earth where they could work. It's really an economic story more than anything else. I think these are not political persecuted refugees or uh, war refugees by and large. They, the war refugees, that there are some, but, but remember, they're crossing 10 different countries to get here. So <laughs> it's not like they're just trying to get out of the way of fire. Uh, they're coming for an economic reason. And the reason why they pick different cities is that, you know, a lot of them just have relatives that have already gotten in or friends that are already established who know the job market and can hook them up with this or that kind of job and can put them up for a few months in a house or an apartment or relative, uh, a lot of it's family reunification. And some of it's just, you know, I know the Americans are not going to let me starve and sleep on a street. I'm going to be taken care of once I get in and I'm going to stay in for years and send money home. And how does the uh, the trafficking or the sort of smuggling element of it work? Because if, let's say, they're coming from Africa or the Middle East, as well as from Central America and Latin America, where are they arriving? How are they being transported? Is there a sophisticated criminal network involved? Yeah, uh, there are very sophisticated intercontinental smuggling networks involved for the people who are extra hemispheric, who are from outside the Western Hemisphere, that arrange for fraudulent documents and bribed visas, typically to uh, South American countries. So they'll fly, they'll be flown from you know Africa. Uh, sometimes they have a legitimate visa. Sometimes, you know, like Angolans, because of the Brazil connection, can fly pretty easily to Brazil. Uh, and then from there, they'll hire smugglers for certain legs. Uh, those cost money. Uh, they get handed off leg to leg to leg by different groups until they get into northern Mexico. And then you have the issue of the cartels who will charge them to just cross the river or to cross them. Uh, very significant sums of money, you know, $2,500 a head for Central Americans, 10000 for Africans, maybe more even for uh, Middle Easterners and people coming from Russia and South Asia uh, so because they figure they have money. So the cartels and the criminal groups are becoming vastly wealthy, have, have grown bloated with profits uh, on this mass migration to an extent that nobody's ever seen before. I saw one estimate that the Mexican cartels as a collective were maybe in the half a million, half a billion a year range before this, and now they're at 13 billion a year. How, to what extent, with your understanding of other countries, does this issue play differently in America? Because I know that conservatives find it very annoying when people say that America is an idea, not just a nation. But it is true, certainly, that America has always been founded on the idea of openness. And of course, you know, immigrant populations made America. Does that make it very different in terms of the politics of dealing with the issue to, say, France or Britain? Well, I think that what, what's happening often in the political discourse is that there's um, an inaccurate merging of legal immigration with illegal immigration 
into one amorphous thing that people just call immigration. <laughs> but the distinctions are very important. Illegal immigration is not okay by congressional fiat and laws that were passed that almost every country in the world has uh, some semblance of controls over borders. Not everybody can just come in when they want by crossing a border without permission. And I think that that's kind of the root of the problem is that there's no distinction made often. Uh, we are the America is most definitely a nation of immigrant of immigrants, but I would argue that it's a nation of legal immigrants that came in with permission over the decades under different you know legal infrastructures. But we really have never had it's never been okay for massive illegal immigration over the southern border, over anybody's border that I'm that I'm aware of until now. And I think it's being made okay. It's being politically made okay because people just decide not to make a distinction between law-breaking, massive law-breaking, and doing it a legal way. Mm. Well, uh, uh, America at the moment has uh, very good employment numbers, officially at any rate. And economists say that the labor market is tight, if anything, too tight for the American economy at the moment. To what extent does immigration feed into that issue? Because obviously large-scale immigration, either legal or illegal, can loosen up the labour market and bring down salaries. To what extent is that playing into this whole problem? Well, it's a very powerful consequence. I think that where you're going to be seeing, we already probably are in the data, that the especially in the service industry sectors, uh, remember, you know, the, the typical migrant coming in, immigrant crossing illegally into the being allowed admittance into the country are low skilled and low, low education, uh, often illiterate people. So they're the kind of jobs and labor that they're going to be producing is going to be at the lower end of the spectrum, which is a spectrum that is occupied by African-American people in cities and urban, so and Latinos who are here legally, who will see their wages depressed. I think that the sectors that are going to be the most terribly damaged and already are, are going to be, you know, Black America, uh, in, in inner city America, uh, which will see their wages depressed. They're going to have to compete for uh, everything, you know, for for their wage. Uh, reduced wages are coming. Do you think that contributes towards, uh, there's been a lot of talk, we talked about it on this podcast a fair bit, that contributes towards uh, a kind of growing conservatism or a more right-wing view among working-class, lower-class Americans, especially on the issue of immigration? Absolutely. Uh, I think we saw Donald Trump tap into that in 2015 and 2016. That's not going away, uh, if anything, that uh, anger and that issue uh, for working class people who would have been in the Democratic Party, labor union people, for example, who uh, were normally attached to the uh, and Latino Americans who, you know, historically have voted with uh, the Democrats are now voting with Republicans in, in historic numbers over this very issue, over this issue. They absolutely hate the illegal immigration, they did it the right way, and they're seeing their wages depressed as a result. 
Donald Trump famously didn't build the wall. I mean, he built, there was a bit of it was built. But do you think uh, the wall would be an effective solution to the problem of immigration? Or do you think that actually just the mere talk of it and the sense among migrants and smuggling groups that uh, this administra- that the Trump administration was very tough was enough to stop sort of problematically large-scale immigration? Well, I don't believe that the wall is some sort of panacea against uh, mass illegal immigration. However, it is, I've been down there, I've spent so much time in and around the wall on both sides that I have to conclude that it is incredibly helpful in the sense that it really slows down traffic. It slows it down or diverts it. Regular, normal pedestrian traffic, I'm not talking about young Olympiads that you see in the film footage, you know, who are climbing the ropes. I mean, like, you know, kids and grandmas are not doing that. (laughs) So the wall really does slow things down and it helps like as a filter that you can catch most everybody if, if it's being patrolled correctly, that you can really catch a lot of people that way and process them. They don't get away into the interior. And if you talk to Border Patrol, they're huge. They're the biggest advocates of this wall because they spend 40 hours a week on it. You know, it, it's their job. So those are the most credible people. And what they'll tell you is that the walls funnel huge numbers of people to the gaps that were left. And that's where they cross in mass. Famously or infamously in the Yuma sector, Arizona, there was a four-panel section that was left undone in the final days of the administration, Trump administration. And inside of about a year, year and a half, uh, almost 500,000 people poured through that one gap in that one wall into America. That's how it works. When you have walls, they don't like to go there for the most part, except young Olympiads. So what do you hope or think that Joe Biden might do in in coordination with the Mexican government? Do you think they are serious about this issue? Do you think they appreciate that it's a grave electoral risk for them if they don't address it? Are you optimistic? What I see happening is a new plan. They call it a new plan, a new new border enforcement plan. I'll put that in air quotes, which is very unusual, very unconventional, and probably illegal, probably gets struck down very soon, where uh, they are now trying to channel those vast numbers of people into lines in Mexico where they will pre-approve them while they're in Mexico to be crossed legally at ports of entry. They, those numbers will then fall off the illegal entry books, which are politically problematic. And they'll just be legalized people who would have jumped the border, but they just moved them from this category to this, to this category. They're all still getting in. And if anything, more people will come to take advantage of this port handoff program. And I think that's you know, what they're what they're up to in Mexico. This thing is going to create long lines in Mexico where the Mexicans are going to have to contend with a lot of immigrants waiting to get through this legal process. But there's a court case in Florida right now that started Monday uh, that 
will probably um, end in uh, cessation of that whole program. We'll see. You alluded to the fact this is a global problem, and it is. In Britain at the moment, we have a, a large-scale problem with boats, and there is talk on the right, although it's very sensitive because it's so politically divisive, about possibly moving towards or thinking about contemplating withdrawing Britain from some of our international human rights obligations. Do you think that inevitably is where the world is going to have to go because this problem is so great and so widespread? Are countries going to have to review asylum policy at a sort of global level? Absolutely. The, the, the root cause, really the only root cause of the American mass migration crisis and of, of prior ones that we've had that were smaller is the U.S. asylum system, which is based on an international protocol that I believe the EU follows. Pretty much all developed nations follow the same kind of protocol. The problem with it is the way that it that immigrants are able to cite it at the border to be let in. And then whether they win, lose, or draw afterwards is irrelevant. They're in. They just disappear into the United States. So that law has to be fixed so that they can't use it to just as an end run around detention and deportation, a permanent end run. And I believe that the, uh, the EU has the same problem. Uh, you're, you're having people cross your borders by the really the hundreds of thousands in the EU on the, the continent there uh, every year. And um, you have to uh, find a way to deport them. You can't, there's a big deep deportation problem. There are just people disappear and you have to go track them down. I, I don't know how many millions of, of people are just hiding in plain sight throughout Europe, but it's because they're, they're allowed to claim asylum inside the countries. That has to end. Well, Todd, congratulations on your book. Uh, this is um, a painful issue, but it's probably the most important issue in the world at the moment. So I hope you have a lot of success with it. And thank you for coming on to Americano. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroze, and the rest of the Spectator's broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.